You're listening to the Cars of Carlisle Network, podcast episode number 127, featuring CFC crew members Sam Faringer and Lou Genacopoulos as they delve into the history of Porsche. Cars of Carlisle is your favorite internationally downloaded podcast about all things automotive. Darren and his CFC team are ever searching for interesting automotive happenings, real stories about real car people, and fun features to inform and entertain you. Each week, the Cars of Carlisle crew brings you show topics ranging from car shows to team adventures to auto racing weekends to behind-the-scenes human interest stories from car nuts that live across town, across the country, or even across the globe. Come join the road trip. On today's Intercast... Sam and Lou dive into the history of the famed German automaker Porsche. Listen in as they discuss influential Porsches from each decade since the company's inception in 1931. The guys cover iconic models, company milestones, and more as they take us on a fact-filled journey through this iconic brand. It's time to head to Stuttgart. So, let's get Hello and welcome back, Cubers, to your favorite informative automotive podcast. I am your trusted host, Darren. As always, it is so good to have you back with us again this week. In a few minutes, we're going to be going to my colleagues, Lou and Sam, and they're going to take you on a walk through 89 years of history of the Teutonic brand from Stuttgart. Remember, this is definitely your podcast. Together, it is all about car community and car culture, and we work hard every single week to bring you guys fun entertainment, as well as a chance to meet new people, which is really what the hobby is all about to us, as well as learn some things along the way. And in the weeks ahead, we're excited to let you know there are going to be some episodes pending with interviews with more truly fascinating car people like gentleman who has built a street legal resto mod vet that can turn the quarter mile in the sixes. Uh, two best friends from San Diego that have made an incredible impact on the custom scene in Southern Cal. A family owned car parts and salvage business that has clients from all over the globe and much, much more. So stay with us on that. And then later this week, we are privileged and blessed enough to be heading to New Jersey for a Porsche driving experience. And then on to Richmond, to drive uh, Lamborghini Huracan, so stay tuned for updates in the future CFC episodes on that. And the CFC team and I would like to send a special shout out to the entire team of world-class professionals at Porsche Mechanicsburg. They are our exclusive OEM automotive dealer, sponsor of this network and the show, and the incredible new Porsche center they're building there. They're on 6625 Carlisle Pike in Mechanicsburg. And as part of the Faulkner Automotive Group, they've been around. The automotive group itself of Faulkner has been around since 1932. The Porsche Center, as I said, is going to be completed here, as you heard me say, in the uh, in the early spring, late winter. But state-of-the-art, and we'll be at uh, some of their exclusive events, including the soft opening and the grand opening, and uh, excited to uh, let you know all about that. But if you are in the market for a pre-owned or a new Porsche, whether you would like to buy something that has a couple of years on it or design something from the ground up exclusively for you, bespoke and with all the uh, the features that you want, and that's one thing that Porsche does very well is allow uh, a buyer to pretty much customize their vehicle right from the factory floor. Whether that's a Porsche Taycan, the all-electric vehicle now, uh, the SUVs like the Macan or the Cayenne, the uh, four-door Panamera, the 911, which we're now in the 992 series of the of the iconic Porsche 911, or even uh, a Porsche 718, the Cayman. Uh, so if you, like I said, are thinking about a Porsche, definitely check out Porsche Mechanicsburg. They will most definitely take care of you as they are an incredible group of professionals, and we sincerely thank them for all that they uh, have given to this network. As we uh, move forward, just wanted to, again, thank you for all the support you give, whether that is out subscribing or going out to PayPal, if you uh, are going through and sharing us with friends and family, going out and rating five stars. However you support Cars of Carlisle, we thank you. And if you haven't done so, if it's on your heart, please do so. All of that helps us very much so we can continue to do our work and do the research and and travel to events and meet new people and all of course being very safe about it especially in the situation that the world's in right now uh, thoughts and prayers go out to everyone uh, but uh, we certainly want to keep 
uh, safe while at the same time bringing you great entertainment. So this is a, about an hour-long uh, discussion of the uh, history of Porsche. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and send this upstate to team members Sam and Lou. And before we uh, go ahead and, and talk to the, the guys, let's uh, clutch in rev match downshift and put, let the clutch back out on this week's trivia question. And here it is. In what model of Porsche did Hollywood's infamous James Dean lose his life? This is a pretty straightforward question and answer this week. Three choices are on this multiple choice. A, a 356 Speedster, B, a 550 Spider, or C, a 901 Prototype. That answer awaits at the end of this episode. So let's go upstate and toss the keys to Cars of Carlisle team members, Lou and Sam. Fellas, take it away. Thank you, Darren, for the introduction. Sam, today we're tackling a long topic. Sometimes we struggle with doing genesis of an entire car corporation, but since we have uh, Porsche Mechanicsburg as our sponsor, we figured why not do an intracast that focuses on the brand itself, Porsche. Yeah, Lou, unlike our Studebaker episode, which had a much shorter car history, uh, Porsche has a much longer legacy and it, I mean, obviously it's still going, so it's pretty tough to get through everything. So yeah, we're just going to hit some high level uh, events in history and just really dig down on a few cars per era that, uh, that we like. So. Yeah. And disclaimer, obviously Porsche has a car company, right? Extremely iconic brand, a bunch of top notch cars, whether it's performance or their SUVs or the four doors of more recent years, we're not going to be able to focus on every car. So Sam and I kind of split this up where we each took a generation focused on one car that meant a lot to us or one that we were most attracted to. You'll see some reoccurring themes, hint 9-11. And we just kind of went from there. And, you know, I don't really know what he's going to talk about as much as he doesn't know what I'm going to talk about. We have our notes, but uh, we're pretty excited just to kind of bounce this back and forth and an era or decade to decade situation. And we'll go from there, but I guess it does make sense probably to start with how Porsche became a car company, right? Yeah. And that all starts with Ferdinand Porsche. Um, he started the first company, I believe in 1931 Stuttgart, Germany. Lou, what, I don't have it written down. What was that company called? I know it's like a bunch of, <laughs> <laughs> like a bunch of letters and stuff. I so if anyone, uh, I'm not German. Um, it's basically, and, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing pronunciating this right. Dr. So doctor dot ing dot h dot c dot f dot Porsche GmbH, which is Porsche, or excuse me, Germany's version of an LLC in America. Uh, so that is what the company started as: consulting company, really dedicated to focusing on automobiles. So. Ferdinand Porsche, uh, like that, he uh, started consulting all the way back to like wagons in a way, I guess you could say, always was involved in, in some type of automobile and decided to found an actual company that was dedicated to that. So you look at like Daimler-Benz, he was consulting for um, where I think it really kicks off for this podcast is is probably starting with his partnership in Volkswagen. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. But before we get to that, there is one, one pretty cool tidbit of history. The, so Porsche is often credited as having the first fully electric vehicle uh, on a vehicle he worked on the 1900 it's loner uh, L O H N E R Porsche. Uh, per, almost all historians recognize that as the first fully electric. And that was in 1900. So he was working on cars, you know, much before he started his own company. And, you know, he actually bounced around the industry a good bit. But back to what you were saying about the, I mean, one of the most iconic vehicles ever, uh, Herbie the Love Bug. So he, his, one of his first assignments, <laughs> his big assignments was to design a car for the people for Germany. And that's what became the Volkswagen Beetle. And that's really important because the first Porsche used a lot of components from that Beetle. And that would have been the, the Porsche 64 that came out in 1939. Yeah, and we probably won't talk about it too much, but 
throughout the genesis of, of both Volkswagen and Porsche, very much a partnership uh, all the way to, you know, Ferdinand Porsche was the chairman, the, the director of the board um, throughout their early genesis and into World War II. Uh, there's cars that are actual partnerships that I will hint on in, in later generations, but pretty important and impactful partnership between the two German brands. Today, they're owned by the same. Volkswagen Group owns a, a portion of Porsche, I believe. I don't know that for sure because I have no idea how these auto companies own different pieces of each other. But I, I mean, if you look right. at, yeah, if you look at Lamborghini, Audi, Ducati Motorcycle, Bentley, they're all owned by Volkswagen Group. So it, the list kind of goes on, but I believe Porsche is also in that umbrella, although a 50% stake is Porsche Auto Group, which really is the controlling stake, but I would say Volkswagen is a, a financial backer for sure. Let's go back to pre-war. Ferdinand Porsche's involvement in, basically you take the company was started in 1948 officially uh, as their own separate automaker. And so this is all of his post relationships with Volkswagen because admittedly, uh, kind of a war criminal, Sam. So if we yeah, dial back a little bit. <laughs> I don't want to delve into that too much. I'd rather- It's important to the history cars, though. It's but... important to the history. So really quick, the Porsche Auto Group as we know today really was a combination of father and son. So Ferdinand Porsche and then Ferdinand, AKA Ferry Porsche. What happened was Porsche is helping Volkswagen which is helping the German war effort through World War II. And they are doing designs for anything from like tanks to uh, there's very popular VW, comparable to our Jeep for World War II. I, I don't really know how to explain it. You can look them up. They're, they look like the thing from the 40s um, that was produced in the 70s by, by Volkswagen. But anyway, he produces uh, tank designs. He produces the Jeep comparison, I guess, for lack of a better term, and uh, well, ultimate. And also, also, Lou, before you get to that, I mean, the car for the people in '39 that was a Hitler thing as well. Um, you know, they're yeah, Porsche, Volkswagen was a communist auto brand. <laughs> yeah, Porsche and Hitler, you know, built that together. So right. sorry, go ahead. Back on to the but, to the pre-war efforts. But anyway, um, what happened was in 1945, as World War II wound down the british took over the volkswagen plant it gets overthrown mr ferdinand loses his director of board position and then at the end of 1945 he is arrested for war crimes gets no trial at all he is sentenced to 20 months during this time ferry is shopping for vehicles decides he doesn't like any current cars available on the market Ferdinand comes out of prison in 1947, and they start the company as its own automaker in 1948. Uh, initially, they had 200 employees, and from 1958 to they start, or when they start through 1959, the first 52 Porsche 356 models are produced from basically a, a small garage. So, yeah, and, and an important note on that is. Even though you know they're doing their own thing, there's still that close connection with Volkswagen. Um, due to yep. Germany not really having any parts availability, they were using Beetle parts. Like I think they used the engine, uh, the transmission, most of the suspension. Um, yep. Some of the body panels, I believe, were reworked Beetle. Uh, yeah, but a company panels. called Ruder or Rudder, uh, which had a factory in a suburb of Stuttgart, was building bodies for the 356 starting in 1950. So. Uh, Back to what you're saying, yes, they're they're borrowing pretty much everything they could. Yeah, and that changed then, I believe, what, 1954 for the 356. They they started actually using their own parts. Uh, they had an engine built by Porsche specifically for that car. So eventually they phased that out. But, you know, early goings was definitely still hugely influenced by Volkswagen. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Ferdinand Porsche actually dies in 1951. Um the 356 is continued to be improved upon by that time. It has 60 horsepower. 
if you go to 1953, a 550 Spider is introduced, which is more of like a race road model car. And it, it's nicknamed the Giant Killer, which basically means that it's taking down Ferraris, Jaguar, Maserati, Aston Martin, etc. Uh, we get into 1954, right where you're talking about. And that is when the infamous Speedster is introduced, which is uh, essentially... You know, it's a German hot rod, right? It's a, a low-priced, stripped-down version of the 356. And today, uh, according to the Porsche Museum, the 1954 through 1957 speeds much the most sought-after Porsche. I know we're only focusing on the company and generations of the car, but I think it's really important because I went down this rabbit hole to talk about the 1955 Spider that James Dean was killed in as a car of its own. So before I do that, do you have anything you want to add from up until this point, 48 through 55? Yeah, just kind of a, a fun fact for people that wonder what the logo is for Porsche. Uh, that actually comes from the coat of arms from the, the free people state of Württemberg in Weimar, Germany. And Stuttgart at the time was its capital. Um, so that's where that comes from. It's not a traditional coat of arms because they're not supposed to have, you know, the words Porsche or Stuttgart in it. But if you ever wondered where that came from, that's what it is. So, Louis, go ahead and take us into the haunted James Dean Porsche. Okay, so by far my favorite part of this research project was going down this rabbit hole. I always knew the story of James Dean's Porsche, right? It's probably one of the most iconic pictures. You see it crashed alongside of a road, just folded in on the driver's side. What I didn't know is, one, how that car got into Dean's hands, and two, the aftermath, what has happened since. So I'm going to sum this up as best as I could. I am taking this directly from an article uh, posted on drivetribe.com, and I did cross-reference through a couple other articles. But essentially, Dean, who, you know, he's the 50s Steve McQueen, and I mean, Steve McQueen was around then too, but very similar legacies, right? Just really cool Hollywood actors, uh, both ra both race car enthusiasts. Uh, James Dean, at the age of 24, decides that he's already a fan of Porsche. He has a 356. He wants the new 550 Spider. He orders it through George Barris or acquires it through George Barris, who we all know, and he has Barris customize it. So essentially just added two red stripes along the trunk and had the numbers 130 painted all over it, including this little moniker, little bastard. So as a week, literally like he gets the car and he comes across um, another actor and I'm going to pronounce his name incorrectly. Mr. Guinness. Yeah. It's um, Alec, Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness uh, sees him alongside the street, says, hey, check out my new car. This is He took order of it September 23rd, I believe it was. And Guinness is like, hey, I don't like the, the vibe that this car is, is giving me. You're going to die in this car within a week. Yeah, and, and his exact quote, this is from his unpublished diaries and, and letters that he kept. The sports car looked sinister to me, exhausted, hungry feeling a little ill-tempered in spite of Dean's kindness. I heard myself saying in a voice I could hardly recognize as my own, please never get in it. If you get in that car, you'll be found dead in it by this time next week. And to which Dean, I guess, apparently laughed. Yep. Beautiful rendition there as Mr. Guinness. So on September 30th. One week later. One week later. Uh, Mr. Dean, and I'm going to butcher this German name, Rolf Wutherich? Wutherich? Uh, who's a, a trained Porsche mechanic visiting the States with James Dean are prepping the car for a race to Salinas, California. So they decide to drive and it's a, a lengthy drive. They're in at about two hours and then uh, Dean gets a speeding ticket for doing 10 miles over. That wasn't really a big deal. They stop to get some food and drinks and they're back on their road trip about 5:15. Half an hour later, a 1950 Ford Tudor coupe driven by, Donald Turnup Speed, which is a real name, crosses the intersection in the median as Dean swerves out of the way. He ends up uh, hitting the, the Ford head on, and then that sends it into a pole, which sends it into a tailspin right around 85 miles an hour. The mechanic's thrown from the car. 
Dean pretty much dead on impact. He officially passed away 30 minutes after the crash in a hospital. And the driver of the Ford and the mechanic both walk away pretty much unscathed, minor injuries. So Wuthrich heads back to Germany. There's never a trial. What happens after is just amazing. Barris buys the car back for $2,500, starts parting it out. So he sends an engine, a transmission, and some other parts to uh, two local racers, Troy McHenry and William Eskrid. So McHenry gets the the engine, I believe, and then Eskrid gets the rest of the drivetrain, and they installed in their own Porsche race cars. These cars are racing the same race now. Few laps into it, McHenry loses control, crashes into a tree, and is killed on impact. Right around the same time, Eskrid was driving his car when the wheels just locked up and caused him to roll over. He was seriously hurt. So Barris is like, okay, that's kind of interesting. Barris then had two tires from the 550 that were untouched since Dean's original accident. He sold tires to a Porsche owner, and both tires exploded at the same time, causing the car to run off the road. This is all within like six months, I guess, not even. So basically all that's left of Dean's little bastard now is the body. The rumor is that someone tried, two thieves tried to break in to steal parts off of it. One uh, one thief tore his arm open while trying to take the steering wheel, and the other guy got seriously hurt as well. Um, <laughs> and it, after that, didn't Barris try to like hide it away? Yeah, Barris was was done with the car. He's at the like, point. no, we're not we're not doing this anymore. This car was clearly cursed. Uh, California Highway Patrol thought it would be good for them to promote highway safety, so they borrowed it. And at the first exhibit, it was at uh, for students basically, like high school students. The exhibit, the car just fell off of the exhibit and <laughs> crushed a hip of a student who was looking at it. Um, which it's just, you think it stops, right? But finally, after all said and done, Barris is done with the car. You're missing another uh, crucial detail from that same story. The first exhibit. The fire part? Yeah, it didn't go off because the garage caught fire. Yeah. Somehow the the car was completely undamaged. I mean, obviously it was a damaged vehicle to begin with, but no fire damage, no heat damage. Um, Sorry, go ahead. Well, now we're fast forwarding into 1960 where they're still using this car for these types of events and exhibits. And then it was headed to Miami where (laughs) something happened that the truck that was controlling it lost control. The driver was thrown out of the truck and the 550 spider landed on him, killed him on impact. So the car was headed then to a final exhibit and it was put on a trailer and was supposed to be delivered back to Barris in Los Angeles. This happened in the Miami area. Disappeared. Car's gone. Truck's gone. Has never been seen since. Anyway, want to talk to happier times? Sure. Yeah, that's a crazy story. I didn't know most of that. I knew bits and pieces of it because I looked at it. And then when you said you were going to research it, I, I kind of gave up on that. But it's insane. I don't know what the death toll on that was, but what, five people and then a few more seriously injured? Yeah, just absolutely nuts. Let's get into happier times. Like, you know, when Porsche hits its uh, real groove in the 60s, no, no pun intended on groovy, and ultimately becomes a car company we know as today. All right, Lou, you want to start us off with the 60s then? So a lot of milestones happen between 1960 and 1963, and and a ton of growth happens into the 50s. Like if you look at 56, the 10,000 Porsches uh, built, the 10,356 Porsches then built in 1958, uh, they're growing. They are starting to get into the European market in terms of like a more prominent independent distribution network in 1962. Then the big boy comes in 1963. What I mean by that is the first official successor to the 356 is shown at uh, the Stuttgart Auto Show. Or it might have been the French Auto Show. I don't have the note in front of me, but it is the the Porsche at the time, the 901, which is a two-liter, 130-horsepower, six-cylinder engine. Um, It takes over. All the body is now being done. 
uh, by Reuters still. However, Porsche now owns the company. And in tandem, this all happens in 1963, where they also get a real distribution network into the US. So worldwide production now is it's like above 11,000 for um the the 356 and into the the 911 1964 the 901 which I previously mentioned uh they were they being Porsche was being sued in France because 901 having a zero in your second digit of a three digit automobile was a uh, a loss or a, a trademark owned by forgetting off the top of my head alfa romeo was that i don't know it was? it was a french company or Pugo. yeah it was, it was either it was either peugeot or um That's whatever idea, I think. yeah it doesn't matter they change it to the 911 which is the moniker we all know today so 911 production begins in 1964 U.S. base price right around $5,500, immediate success. 1965, the 10,000th, I'm sorry, the 356 production ends after 17 years and 77,000 built. They, uh, port, they being Porsche, obviously, quickly responds to demand for new uh, entry model with the 912, which is essentially just the 911 body with a 356 four-cylinder as opposed to the, the flat six offered in the 911. And from here through 1970, it booms. Porsche expands the 911 models to include uh, the target top. Uh, it has a semi-automatic transmission new in 1967, the high-performance 911S in 1967, the lower-priced 911T in 68, fuel injection in 69, the bigger engine in 1970. I mean, it is just booming. Um, 1969 is also the mark of the the VW Porsche 914. This is the first official combined badge of two cars, uh, which is a real partnership, right? It's not, there's always been behind the scenes trading back and forth. And certainly no one was shy to link the two vehicles, but this is a kind of a budget build sports car that is sold through VW dealerships, has a lot of Porsche influence. It's sold through Porsche um, dealerships, has a lot of VW influence. So pretty cool car, uh, really in an effort to saturate the entire US uh, and uh, German markets. So anything I missed there, Sam? I feel like you know the 911 is, is a pretty prominent car that we're gonna talk about through a number of generations. So the 63 model or 64 models into the late 60s are among the most collectible. It's the first generation, a ton of different iterations of them. Uh, anything I missed? Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot we missed on on that. <laughs> there's a ton with Porsche. So there's not at this time, but there's 16 total models of the 911. So you could really get bogged down in details about each one. And Definitely. We're, we're going to. Uh, as we continue into the 70s, but yeah, there's there's a lot on those cars, and one of the crazy things, and this will come up later in the 90s, um, and Porsche didn't use a lot of interchanging parts on their cars, which is kind of crazy because they have a ton of models throughout. Obviously, the 911, 16 sub models, those all use interchangeable parts, but you know, if you look at like a 9, 911, 914, like. Uh, the 550. Like, it doesn't matter what years you're looking at. If you have similar models, most of them up until the 90s did not use interchangeable parts. Definitely. I mean, probably not a smart business move to maximize profit, but I don't think Porsche has ever been a company that's really been hurting. So kind of not our problem. <laughs> so we're obviously going to talk about the 70s. Any idea what your flagship car is going to be? Of course, it's going to be the 911 Turbo, which I, I do want to back up and say that, you know, even since the very beginning, Porsche has done something that is unconventional compared to other automakers, and that's with the rear-mounted engine. Uh, that That's really not something you see. Now, you, you'll see it with supercars, hypercars, obviously, like the new C8 um, has a rear-mounted engine, you know, stuff like that, but it, Porsche has stuck to that, and the 911 Turbo from the 70s also stuck to that. So before we get into that, in 1972, the company became a publicly limited company as opposed to, I think it was like an LLC or the German equivalent, German equivalent of an LLC prior to that, and established an executive board 
And part of the reason was Ferry, uh, Porsche, he had kind of looked at Honda and Honda had this directive that said no family members in the executive board or no family members in the company. So they kind of, he kind of took that and stuck to it. They also made a supervisory board of pretty much, you know, predominantly family members uh, that didn't function in the same executive capacity as the executive board did. This led to a couple of the prominent Porsche, Porsche uh, family members leaving. Ferdinand Alexander Porsche, he left. He went on to make a company called Porsche Design that made watches, sunglasses, furniture, uh, stuff like that. Full supercar market saturation. Yeah. And then that's also the same time that they had their first CEO, a guy by the name of Dr. Ernest Furman. And what's crazy is Furman wanted to replace the 911 with a front-mounted V8 uh, 928 Grand Sports Wagon. Uh, I think there's rumors that people – like the workers at the plant kind of – not rioted, but they protested it and said they needed to keep the 911 model, which they did. And it went on to be obviously one of the most successful cars ever. And so it outlived the, the, V2, or the V8 928. I think he was in power or, well, he was leading the company, I think, until somewhere in the, the early 80s. Are you a fan of the front engine Porsches? No. Oh, I like them. So are you not going to talk about them? I don't don't know. edit this out. This is good. Well, I, it's not that I dislike them. I just, I, you know, part of the appeal of Porsche is rear the engine. weight distribution, the rear engine, the fact that they've always kind of been the smaller car to take on bigger cars. Um you know, up until like all the electronic advances where they, you know, the electronic braking systems and all that stuff, very mechanically based cars. I don't know. I, I just like the rear slash mid engine for the Porsches more than anything. Fair. Sorry now to interrupt. It's, now it's not saying I like all mid to rear ends. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying the Fiera is a great car, but you get it. So leave it, leave it to two muscle car American kids to drop, <laughs> drop a Fiero on a Porsche podcast <laughs> so all right back to the the 911 turbo which it ran from th this generation ran from 75 to 89 but i'm only going to focus pretty much up until 80 there's only two iterations in the 70s so we'll kind of talk about them but it was first unveiled as a concept car at the frankfurt motor show in 1973 and then I think there was 2,000 pre-orders for it, and they pretty much went into production with it and launched in Europe a year before America. So it launched in European markets in 75 and the American markets in 76. Internally, the car was known as the 930, and I don't know the reason for that, but it's essentially it in their sequential number system, it was like the top model that you could possibly get for the 911. And at the time of its launch in 75, when it launched in Europe, it was the fastest production car in the world at the time of launch, which, I mean, Porsche has always kind of been built on that uh, pushing the limits kind of mentality. One thing that people are going to remember about these cars is like that huge wing on the back. And the first generation, which is... The 75 to 77 isn't the wing you're thinking of. I, I think they call it like the whale tail. That comes later in 78. But the 75 to 77 was a three liter, uh, 260 horsepower turbocharged car, but it had no intercooler. Also had no ABS, no power steering, no traction control, pretty much nothing to help you, which is bad when you have a car that doesn't hit its power band until 4,000 RPM. So the car originally was nicknamed the Widowmaker because you'd be cruising along and until you hit 4,000, it just kind of it kind of struggled a little bit. And they actually had to use a four-speed transmission to keep up with the torque for it because as soon as it hit that power band, it would that rear end would just rip people off the road. So that didn't really change in 78. <laughs> they kind of kept that. What they did change, however, was they modded the the spoiler on the back to the iconic whale tail with the, the finned up lips. And both of these models, they had the big fender flares. I think it was like two inches wider than the normal 911 uh, front splitter uh, you know, bucket seats in the interior. 
it was more of a race ready car uh, with some limited creature features, but it ran uh, zero to 60 in 5.5 seconds on 11 ish pounds of boost, which is pretty darn good for a car that time. The 78s to 89s, they jumped up to 300 horsepower with the introduction of that intercooler around the redesigned tail. They also, I think they changed to, they had a twin tailpipe, but something it, something odd with it. The, the exhaust gases only went out one side of it if the, the boost controller was open. So awesome car in general. They also outfitted this car with the cross-drilled rotors, which is the first on a production Porsche. And it had the big brake kit on it, four piston calipers, so it could move. But it was still not necessarily a an everyday driver car. It was definitely race-tuned in a way that would appeal to a more serious driver. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at the genesis and the history of Porsche, it's always been finding opportunities to do unique things to create power. Like... No one was mass producing turbocharged cars in the 70s. It, it just wasn't a thing. You had all the competition, Ferrari, Lamborghini, were V12 naturally aspirated, where these are six cylinders, four cylinders, six cylinders, most of the time, all the time. Right? Yes. I don't know if there was a base model that used a four cylinder, but these were all six. Regardless, you're doing. You know, half the weight of that car, uh, two thirds of the weight, and a turbo that is just destroying competition in a, a light or a driver centric, driver oriented car. It's it's just really impressive. Yeah, and a car that could handle well. I'm pretty sure the earlier models they ran 15 by sevens with like a 205.50 on it in the front, instead of 15 by eight with a 255.50 in the rear. And then when they moved up and did their slight redesign for 78, I think they upped that to 16s all the way around, um, which, you know, Porsche is always known for that squat look, squat wide look. And this is kind of where this started taking off for them, it really gave them that distinct uh, race ready style. So, again, Lou, there's so many other cars we could talk about during this period, but like we said, we're going to try to focus to you know, one per decade and go into that in a little more depth. So tell me about any car from the eighties. I don't know. I, again, I haven't read your notes, so I don't know if this is a car you personally like, or I don't know if this is a historically significant car. So what do you have for Porsche in the eighties? Well, Sam, I have both this for a housekeeping standpoint from a business sense, uh, Porsche really starts, uh, expanding the the 924 model line so the 924 turbo comes out in 1981 it's uh up to this point it's it's porsche's most popular model and it's also a pretty successful race car 1982 comes porsche launches uh porsche cars north america which is headquartered in reno nevada uh, this also comes with the new 944 model which is based on the 924 but it's modified slightly and has a a porsche built four cylinder 1983, new 911 Cabriolet hits the, the United States, uh, which quickly outsells the Targa and becomes one of uh, the most iconic 911s, at least in my opinion. Yeah, a Cabriolet is a pretty interesting looking car. But they go public in 1984, and this really starts for me – like if I if money was no object, this is the car that I would try and, and acquire. So 84 and then in 1985, they have been doing development of this vehicle since 1981. But in 1985 and then into 86, the 959 is launched, which is the most powerful and fastest street legal production car at the time of introduction in the world. It has a top speed of 197 miles per hour, which is just like that's unheard of to go that fast in the eighties is absolutely crazy for a production car. It has a, a an all wheel drive system. Um, they put it in rally cross. I mean, a supercar that's going 197 miles per hour is modified to rally race and it just dominates competition, which is so cool. 
and it looks ridiculous. You know, you, you take the, the wide and rear sections that you're talking about. This basically has, for lack of a better term, it has like, I don't even know how to explain it, like truck like runners along the side of it. Yeah, it kind of looks like an old like 50s Chevy or something. And then it's got like these yeah, big, like <laughs> those big vents in the rear wheel well, you know, rear Which are functional. Engine. Yep. Yeah, it's a weird wow. looking car. I mean, it, it's pretty in its own right, but it's definitely not the prettiest of all the Porsches. Well, the coolest thing is they had to, it, it was really built for rally. That was their kind of genesis of it. I just realized I've said genesis a lot on this podcast. You have. Keep that in too. Uh, so they had a homologated similar to like how a Superbird had to be homologated for NASCAR in, in 1970 or the Daytona in 1969. So they make uh, the minimum requirements. I believe it was 200. And then the car really has split personalities. You could take it, you know, the rally route, which obviously weren't sold production versions. They were definitely more sports cars, supercars, but it was so technologically advanced for, from a road standpoint, it really set the standard for, sports cars to come throughout the 80s and 90s um you know talking about the all-wheel drive the the turbocharged versions the um all-wheel drive system gets to the 911 career 4 eventually it becomes one of the top sports cars of the 80s and in my opinion one of the most iconic supercars up there with the countach and the testarossa uh, etc so they're produced into your generation into the 90s, 93. There's a, a 959, there's a, a 959 Comfort, a 959S, which is the the uh, the sport version that had larger turbos, which was really like 508 horsepower. That was a, a car that broke 211 uh, miles per hour in 1988 on uh, the Nardo ring, which only 29 were produced, but really they took a car that they launched in production in 1986 and in two years created a significantly faster version. Like I said, it was originally built for, for rally. It ended up winning uh, classes in, or it participated in Le Mans in 86 and 87 and it participated in IMSA. It was a true race car built for the road to homologate. And ultimately, like I said, in my opinion, it's the, it's the greatest Porsche ever made. So, I don't have much else to say about it other than I want one. And if uh, Porsche Mechanicsburg ever gets one that they're displaying and want to let us drive, I promise I will keep it sane. Lou, you don't happen to know what they go for now, do you? Did you uh, look that up at all? No. Um, there's only, I think total production is fairly low. I have that number somewhere stashed in my notes. I'll find it while you're talking about the 90s. But... I know in the early 2000s, there was a, a company called Canapa Design that initiated an upgrade program to the 959. Basically, you know, additional computers on board, turbochargers, emission requirements uh, that needed to be met to keep it street legal in the U.S. And that package alone cost $2 million. So they only wow. made 50 of those upgrades. And again, this is... A, you know, a very small select group of production cars to begin with, but it, it really, it wasn't even a street legal car in the U S until 1999. Uh, a lot of the, the requirements weren't met, but people drove them on the street. So they only had to be homologated for other uh, markets. All right. So I know I said, I, well, we talked prior to this, and we had talked about in the 90s, I was possibly going to do the 911 once again. And I decided against that. Kind of. One uh, note, not to cut you off uh, while we're sticking on our famed 911s. In 1987, the 250,000th 911 was built. I think that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Continue. So before I get into the 911 or the actual car that I picked here, uh, there is one car I wanted to at least bring up, and at least for our generation, it's kind of become a joke car, synonymous with a midlife crisis, but it's been a very, very, very important car for Porsche, and that is naturally the Porsche Boxster. So 
like I said, I mean, it's known to us. If you see one, if you see an older gentleman driving one, you know, it's kind of a joke that it's a midlife crisis car. But what was so important about it, and this harkens back to what I was talking about earlier, these were the first cars where Porsche decided to take a, a page out of Toyota's book. They had been talking with them and started using interchangeable parts on their cars. And the the Boxster, I'm pretty sure, was the best-selling Porsche until 03 when the Cayenne came out. And it's universally regarded as a great car. And it's not overly attractive. It's a, a two-seater rear engine. That is, a, is that a two plus two? For lack of a better term, it's, it's a two-seater that has somewhat of enough room for two people in the back. Yeah. So as an example, my stepdad has one. And it's a great car to drive. Love driving it. It's just not going to win you any looks competitions, and it's not going to be the fastest car out there. But it was huge in Porsche's development. They were struggling in the early 90s uh, kind of to conform with the, the current markets, as actually every automaker was, as you know, we saw that with GM, um, all sorts of new restrictions. The demographics wanted different things out of cars. You know, long gone were the days of the big engines, which Porsche never really had to deal with. But, you know, you had the fuel crisis. People weren't buying cars the way they used to. So the Boxer really came in and provided them a strong foundation in which they could build on their entry-level cars. So now to an actual really cool car from the 90s, and that is the Porsche GT1. And... I, I originally I was going to talk about the 911 from this era because the 911 from this era is often regarded as the most sought after 911s. Uh, they're awesome, but the GT1 is an extremely extremely cool car. And Porsche again pushing the limits like they always did. They debuted the car in '96 for the GT Race Series, and by rule you had to have you were supposed to build a GT car off of a production car. Porsche went the complete opposite way and built a full-fledged racing car and then built production cars as detuned versions of it to get around the rules. It's technically a 911. It does have some 911 parts. Uh, essentially what they did was they took the front end, the front end of a 911 993 and mated that with the rear end of a 962 and then held the whole thing together by a tubular frame. What was really neat about that frame is it allowed for movement of the engine positioning. So depending on what they were doing, they could have a mid or a rear engine uh, mount position, which is pretty cool. And had a full carbon fiber body and was built to take on uh, the McLaren F1s, which were absolutely just completely dominating the Le Mans circuit in the early 90s. So... They first raced this in 96, and they raced it at a – their debut was at the, the BPR Global GT Series, and they won hands down. I mean, just blew that race away, but it was an invite-only situation, and they were ineligible for points, so they didn't actually win anything. But that gave them the confidence to continue to build and make some changes and tweak for the 97 year to battle the F1s and the Mercedes-Benz CLK GTRs in the GT1 class. Other than some minor cosmetic things, aerodynamics, and, you know, like, updates to the suspension to be competitive, they really didn't do a ton. And, you know, again, they had the, the full carbon fiber body, but the big thing that they did was added a carbon fiber chassis, which significant, I think it was a third of the weight of the original chassis, and gave them a significant advantage, so much so that by the 98 Le Mans, they finished a 1-2 and gave Porsche the 16th overall Le Mans win, which is the most for a manufacturer in history. So that that's 98, but again, I said earlier, they were supposed to have a production car of this. They started in 96. It wasn't until 97 that they actually offered a production car to comply with the regulations. And that was the GT1 Stasse version, which is German for street version, which was pretty much a race car that you were allowed to drive on the street. They like barely, barely tuned down the engine and it still put out 536 horsepower. It could hit 194 miles per hour and do zero to 60 in 3.6 seconds. 
you know, they obviously they gave uh, some more creature comforts in the interior cab and um, raised the car a little bit, softer suspension, stif- you know, stuff like that. But it was essentially still just a race car. And again, they had to they had to build 25 of these, which they never did. Only 41 total were built. 18 of them were for racing and 23 street cars. However, from 98 on, McLaren, I believe it was, it was either McLaren or Mercedes began to dominate again. And pretty much every auto manufacturer pulled out a GT1 and GT1 got canceled. And that's what led to the next iteration, you know, the Porsche GT2s and, and stuff like that. But when they were built in the late 90s to get you into a streetcar version of the GT1, it would cost you about $912,000. I have no idea what one would go for now. Uh, I did see there was estimates from an article on Hemmings where there was one that was in like the $8 million range, something like that. But I didn't research it too far, but chances are we'll never even see one of these outside of maybe the Porsche museum. Yeah, definitely an iconic car, uh, which is really interesting because I don't think you know what car I'm going to be focused on for the 2000s. And it's a direct correlation of the GT1 design. Sorry, not the physical design, but it has design elements in terms of drivetrain, et cetera, uh, engineering, all that good stuff. But before I talk about the car I want to talk about, 2000s were a huge act generation for not only Porsche, but the automobile market and really what we know today. Uh, up until this point, there wasn't really a high-end luxury version uh, SUV. Just it didn't exist. And now you can rattle off pretty much every major manufacturer, including Lamborghini, have their own. I don't even know. What would you call them? Like a supercar SUV? But the Cayenne, 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 I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, that debuts in 2003 uh, as the Cayenne Turbo and the Cayenne S. It is Porsche's first sport utility vehicle, SUV, and really changes the market. If you think about how many cars are even being produced today compared to SUVs, it's minimal, where at the time it was still flipped uh, or at least 50-50. It's clearly not anymore, but the Cayenne comes out in 2003. They continue and improve on it throughout the 2000s. It's really, if I think of Porsche in in the 2000s, that's the car I think of, but it's not the car I want to talk about. So other highlights just from the 2000s before I move on, uh, which Porsche does dictate as their new millennium. The 911 GT2 debuts in 01. It's a, just a, sexy sexy vehicle the 2006 you have the geneva motor show they bring the porsche 911 gt3 i mean mean a lot of racing inspired enhancements in this generation as well Um, the new cayenne debuts again a new version of it in 2008 and then already in five years 200,000 cayennes are um, produced which if you look at the 911 from 63 to 87 it took them you know 20 plus years to get to 250,000 they did 200,000 Cayennes in in five years which is pretty impressive however Sam I'd like to talk about a vehicle that they made through four years only 1,270 the Porsche Carrera GT otherwise known as Project Code 980 it was a car that you could literally trace it back to 911 GT1 heritage. They're just tabled for a, a number of reasons. It was initially supposed to come out in 2000, gets pushed back, gets pushed back again because of the Cayenne, starts being a, tur- a twin turbo flat six, ends up being a V10. It is like the most powerful car again of, of this generation. Uh, it's infamous for being known as an incredibly difficult car to drive. Jay Leno spun his out. Paul Walker infamously was killed in in his that he owned with uh, Roger Rodas, I believe was his partner, who also passed away in the accident. Um, really just uh, an impressive 600 plus horsepower car at 603, I believe. Um, 
top speed well over 200 miles an hour, uh, 205 miles an hour to be exact, and and just a strikingly beautiful car. It was, uh, like I said, it was a V10, which up until this point, Porsche really didn't get any bigger than a V8, and most of their claim to fame was a a, um, a V6 or a flat six, I mean. Uh, dual clutch transmission, which Porsche is so well known for today, only came in a six-speed manual. Like it was a true race car that you had to be a really good driver to handle. And uh, it, when it was launched, it got a whopping nine miles per gallon. So just an awesome car, zero to 60, three and a half seconds, which is absolutely crazy, uh, especially for the time. So when I think again of the 2000s, I think of the Cayenne, but not the car I wanted to talk about. Round us off, man. I, I think. Uh, All right. Yeah, we're, we're going to move in the nitty gritty and what's going to be the future of Porsche from here on out. Yeah, so we're going to move into the teens. We're not necessarily going to talk about the newest and greatest models. Uh, I think there's a way cooler car of, you know, 2010 and on. But obviously, Porsche is still making the Cayenne, the Cayman, the Panorama, which is a pretty neat looking car. Uh, the Macan, the Taycan, like they're still making a lot of cars. But the coolest car that they made production wise, I think, was the Porsche 918 Spider. It's considered to be the the first hybrid hypercar, which personally, I don't know the, the delineations all that well between supercar, hypercar, uh, things like that. But, you know, this would be on the same level as like a Koenigsegg or something like something along those lines. So the 918 Spider was built in 2013 to 2015. Uh, I believe there's 918 of those units total made. As a hybrid hypercar, uh, that means there is a naturally aspirated engine and electric engine. It, sorry, it doesn't have to be naturally aspirated, but in this case it is. So what it came with was a 4.6 liter naturally aspirated V8 that put out 599 horsepower. They combined that with two electric motors, uh, one pretty much to drive the front axle, one to pretty much drive the rear axle for an additional 282 horsepower, grand total of around 875 horsepower and 945 foot-pounds of torque, had a crisp seven-speed transmission and a tickets or a sticker price of 845000 Just, it, they're absolutely gorgeous cars, too. And it was first shown off, this car, another one of those Porsche cars that took a few years to get into development, it was showed off in Geneva in 2010, took a little while to get to production, and then they also unveiled at that show an RSR racing variant, but we unfortunately never got to see that uh again had the v8 direct injection L or engine with a 10,300 red line and an additional 200 plus uh horsepower from the electric motors and a racing six-speed transmission but focusing on the variant that we did get to see this car hit zero to 60 in 2.6 seconds in full race mode and could hit 186 miles per hour in 19.9 seconds with an overall top speed of 214 miles per hour. Now, those numbers are Porsche's numbers. Uh, I believe it was Car and Driver did their own testing and found that their 0 to 60 was actually closer to 2.2. The 0 to 100, I can't remember what it was, but everything ended up being faster on the actual car than what Porsche rated it for. And they recorded a hot lap quarter mile time at 9.8 seconds. What was neat about this car, like most hybrid cars, is there's a bunch of different drive modes you could have. You could drive, if for whatever reason you wanted to, you could drive on just the electric motors alone and not even start the V8, and that would get you about 28 miles before, oh, I'm sorry, it would get you about 18 miles before it stopped driving with a max speed of 93 mile per hour. Then there was two hybrid modes, which essentially used both engines. One, the hybrid mode itself was for, you know, your day-to-day -day driving and the race mode. To go further onto the race mode, they had a hot lap setting, uh, pretty much to unlock the full potential of the car. 
And with that setup, you could essentially run a, a full tank of gas and an electric charge for 420 miles in the race mode. Obviously, that's going to depend on your driving. So if you were driving that car, Lou, I would say you're probably closer to 200 miles per, per fill up. But thank you. Another thing about and we've talked about a bunch of cars here that have set records. So we talked about the 911 being one of the fastest uh I'm sorry, was that the Carrera GT that was the fastest production car or whatever that throughout their history, they've been, you know, a, a company that sets records. So the 918 Spider went to the infamous, um, the Nuremberg and was the first production car, street legal production car to break the seven minute mark. And it beat the previous record by 14 seconds with a total lap time of six minutes and 57 seconds. And that was actually in the very first month that the car was released. So unfortunately, the car only ran for two years, only a little over 900 units. So there's not a ton of history on it, but if you get a chance, go take a look at the car. It's really cool looking, and it's a really, really fast car. This is going purely off memory, but I remember, I believe Motor Trend, either head-to-head or what was the other show they had? Ignition sampled one and, and got access and i think that i remember them saying that it's braking in race mode would rejuvenate the electric engine it would create it would turn the friction into like a solar not a solar charger but it would take the brake friction and convert it into stored energy to repower the the hybrid engine the yeah electric- and yeah, and so this was one of those cars that had the electronically boosted braking system rather than like a vacuum boost, which, you know, we'd be familiar with. So, yeah, it would essentially recharge its batteries, work almost as an alternator. Um, you can think of it that way with the braking system and in essentially in coasting. Whenever you weren't using uh, the electric engines, it would be recharging those engines. The V8 could recharge the electric engines, I think it was two liters of fuel. Um, you could charge it from your house, just like a 110 socket. I think that took like seven or eight hours. And then they had like a speed charger, which would charge it in like a half hour. Um, so it, it's pretty pretty neat technology. And just, again, absolutely beautiful car. Did we just become a, an EV podcast or are we going to do the next intercast as a Tesla focused? God, I hope not. Yeah, no, I'm not into that. But in closing, uh, I guess I should have mentioned that the Panamera came out in 2009 as well, but you did a great job covering it. So in closing, Porsche, in in my opinion, has always had the, I don't know if underdog is a fair way to put it, but it's not about how big of a gun you bring to a fight. It's about how you use it, and they've always done whether it's, you know, weight balance or uh, yeah, weight transfers, you know, low center of gravity, well balanced cars. You always hear that Porsche is a driver's car, meaning that it's always going to be well balanced, focused for the enthusiast that's going to be able to push it to its limits, where it's not going to let you down, but you're going to be able to maximize the car, and you don't necessarily need five, six, seven, 800 horsepower to take down the cars that have five, six, seven, 800 horsepower. Yeah. And that's pretty much been their MO from the beginning. Again, you know, we talked about it or you talked about it early on the giant slayer, you know, the underdog mentality, the, you know, you don't have to be the biggest guy in the room. And that's what's, what's great about Porsches. And like we've said many times through here, we didn't get to all these, all the Porsche models, especially the, the classic ones from the sixties, seventies, you know, we didn't talk about the ones that you see riding around town still, the 944s, uh, which I like. It, we briefly brushed on the 912s. There's a ton of great Porsches out there, and their racing lineage is it could take up 10 of these podcasts. Um, the amount of Le Mans victories that they have, like, I believe it was 16 in total. We could talk about each iteration of their cars. So if you know, this podcast, if this is something you like, definitely get out there and look at more about Porsche because there's a ton more information out there. And in closing, it is Porsche. I say it both ways. It's hard to kind of, especially when you're talking about like Ferdinand Porsche, it's hard to say both, but 
It's Porsche. All right, Louie. Thanks for that pronunciation lesson. And on that, we will see you next time on the Sam and Lou Intercast. We are back to Studio A. Great job, Sam and Lou. As always, enjoy the Intercast special edition episodes you guys put together. I know there's a lot of work into the research alone, and I thank you guys for the hours of hard work. Now it's time for the trivia question answer. In what model of Porsche did Hollywood's infamous James Dean lose his life? Was it A, a 356 Speedster, B, a 550 Spider, C, a 901 Prototype? And the answer is B, a 550 Spider. James Dean unfortunately passed on September 30th, 1955. He was on his way back. Uh, He had been to several auto racing events, was traveling to another sports car racing competition, and he lost his life. uh, that day in uh, Sholome, California, and it was actually at a, at a junction and intersection between what was the old Route 466, which is now the California State Route 46, and California State Route 41. He died that day at the age of 24 in a 550 Spider. My friends, we have reached the end of this week's road trip. Thank you for being part of this journey. As always, thank you for supporting this network through your positive reviews on iTunes, five-star ratings, subscribing, sharing with others. We thank you very much for that. And we are truly excited to have you come back and join us again on next week's Audio Road Trip. Just remember that this is your podcast. We want to hear your voice. Email us at carsacarlaoutlook.com. We take all of your input and suggestions and try to do our very best to integrate and apply that to make this a better podcast each and every week. Because together, it is all about car community, car culture. I'll leave you with drive well, be well, take care.